I firmly believe if you don't get like a little rush of adrenaline every day, you're not living. Like, go do something else. Now, when you can take bigger risks, like for me, when I kind of said, okay, I'm not doing this Wall Street thing anymore. I am literally retiring and I'm going to go find another job. It was really scary. I was like, oh my God, maybe I'm not qualified for anything. Maybe I'll never get another job. But I did it because I could. But I also knew if I didn't do it at that stage, I would just keep doing the thing I was doing because I was good at it. But but it didn't. I was in the quadrant of like, I was good, but low passion. Welcome to the Common Threads. During each episode, we'll travel through time to explore the childhoods, influences, and habits of some of the world's leading athletes, industry experts, and entrepreneurs. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening app, and visit ProKit, where we bring together the best interviews, podcasts, and articles in a new platform for athletes. I'm your host, David Swain. Okay, so we are here for the Common Threads with Sarah Fryer, who is the chief neighbor Amen. Which you can also call the chief executive officer of Nextdoor. Also the co-founder of Ladies Who Launch. Yep. An organization to empower women entrepreneurs and spotlight them. She is on the board of Slack and Walmart. She was the CFO of Square for over six years. She has two children and I just don't understand how you have time for all of those things. <laughs> I feel that like is, I died and you're not writing my, like my how, gravestone. She was. That is the theme that I just cannot understand is how do you how does all of that happen? Um, and we're going to figure that out. That's my goal for this podcast is to figure out the answer to how you've done that. And then you can mail it back to me. Yes. And I'll give you the playbook when once I figure it out and uh, I'm going to sell it for a lot of money. Um, so I start with the hardest question always, which is what did you have for breakfast this morning? Oh, oh, I, this morning I am back on granola, but I have been trying to be keto. So I've been the queen of eggs for about a year and a half, but with COVID-19, I seem to have less and less time to go from breakfast to my office, which I don't understand since it's like a three minute walk now. And so I'm back to uh, granola and blueberries because I read that blueberries will release the same feeling of happiness um, that uh, or the same whatever that gives you happiness. All right. I like it. How did you end up on the keto kick? Um, UCSF. So I went to a fundraiser for UCSF and they were giving out these little things that you blow into that tell you where you are in ketosis. And so if you know me, I have never met a number or a goal that I didn't like. In fact, it's a danger zone. I have to be very careful with myself to not, you know, not find myself in a mode of setting goals. And so I loved it. I was like, oh, I can blow into this little device and it's like a game. And so that kind of kicked off uh, the last year plus of um, keto. And have you seen the results change from yeah. your goal setting? <laughs> it actually, no, I, I'm like, I'm bought in that it's a real thing. Um, because it's not it's not so much about weight and so on. It's more about energy. Um, and I actually do find, I don't know if it's my Northern Irish genes, like I love carbs. But when I don't eat a ton of carbs, I feel way more energetic through the day. So it's, it's a good thing from that perspective. That's great. Um, so let's, you just talked about your Northern Irish um, roots. So why don't we just talk with about where you got started? What was your, you know, w- 
Where'd you grow up? Mm-hmm. What did your town look like? <laughs> so, so I grew up in a, a little village called Cyan Mills, um, teensy tiny. I think it's like 1,400 people live there. I'm not even sure how many were there when I was growing up in Northern Ireland on the border. So think the Northwest. Derry would have been our closest big city and then Straban, the closest town. Um, pretty tough times, actually, to grow up somewhere. So I grew up during the Troubles. So there was a lot of troubles going on where I lived. In fact, Straban, if you Wikipedia it, was the most bombed town of its size for, I think, about three decades, including through the whole Bosnian-Serbian uh, crisis. So even then, we won the medal of, like, the most bombed town. And yet, so that if that was the bad, and, like, I definitely... I think the good is you grow up realizing that kids are incredibly resilient because I think about some of the stuff me and my friends went through. It's kind of crazy growing up in a war zone. On the other side, I grew up in a place that had tremendous community associated with it. So my mom was the local nurse. She was a midwife. So at a time when a lot of women didn't go to hospital to have their babies, my mom was like home birthing the best of them. And my dad was the local personnel manager and was really, in, you know, the whole village was built around this mill, hence the name, Cyan Mills. And so they were deeply involved in community and it was an incredibly neighborly community. So it was this strange kind of almost bipolar place to grow up of incredible security and safety and neighborliness. And then on the other side, a war zone. So I don't even know if today I could bring those two things together, but that's what it was like. You know, what were you like as a 10-year-old? Like, what was that, what was that, you know, who, what type of student were you? So I was, I was the good student, for sure. Uh, I see it in my daughter now. Um, so what was I like as a 10-year-old? So I was ultimately did engineering in college, and I was always really inquisitive about things. I love to take things apart. Um, you know, even coming, at, you know, I think my brother and I, we would play Lego all the time. It's like one of my defining Sunday afternoon memories was the Lego pile. And you had to get all the best pieces to build the best possible thing. And of course, like I was also kind of competitive. You can hear that coming through already <laughs> at 10. Um, but I was a really good student. Partially, you know, I feel like I had a lot of drive even from early days. And, you know, particularly as it, then as I got into my teens, I really knew that I wanted to go kind of see the world. And the way to do that was education. And so I often felt it would be my mom and dad who'd be trying to persuade me not to work anymore. You know, my, my dad loves to golf. And so he'd always be like, how about you come out golfing on Sunday? I'd be like, no, I must revise. You know, so in some ways, like a dream child, I guess. But on the other hand, I think they worried about the intensity um, that I had for things, even at that age. Do you ever, where do you think the intensity came from? You know, I, I don't know, because I don't know, on my mom's side of the family, I mean, my, my mom's oldest sister, my auntie Isabel, is definitely very driven. She was a headmistress, like very academic. My, I never knew my mom's parents. I mean, they had a really hard life. I mean, these were farmers who, you know, for a lot of my mom's childhood, like lived on a farm where like there wasn't even an inside toilet. Like my mom's mom, you know, had, I don't know how many kids she actually had, but my mom has, there's seven of them in total. And there were more that didn't make it through childhood. But that was a woman who, you know, would like give birth and be out on the farm the next day. So there was a lot of grit and persistence, I think, in that side of the family. My dad's side of the family and my dad, like what I get from him is definitely this kind of curiosity 
and inquisitiveness about the world, but about people. My dad is an amazing people person. Like he can talk to anyone. In fact, the danger of taking my dad anywhere outside in the world is like he will stop and you'll be like, where'd he go? And he'll be having like an hour conversation with someone random. Um, and it's a beautiful thing. It can be frustrating when you're trying to get something done. But you kind of meld those two, two things like curiosity and inquisitiveness, but with like this grit and persistence can be a powerful combination, can be a bad combination too. <laughs> so from a war zone <laughs> with great community, and it sounds like very inspiring, um, you know, humble parents yeah to oxford mm-hmm. how did that happen I, mean, uh, I can't imagine <laughs> that everybody in your village was, <laughs> it was it was very atypical to go first of all like growing up in northern ireland for college you mostly stayed home in northern ireland or you went to scotland and so that's where all my friends were going and so even to go to england was kind of not the done thing um, you know, the Oxford thing, I, I, I don't know where it came from. I think it came from the, my, my Nana Finlay, the woman who looked after me because my, my mom worked, um, when I was a kid, kid used to always say, Sarah's going to go to Oxford. And like, it's amazing what you can put inside a kid's psyche at a very early age. And so, you know, by the time I was 17, 18, I kind of was like, well, this is something I really want to do back to a goal, like right. kind of set that goal. Um, it brought with it complexity because going to England was expensive. My parents were like con- very worried about the cost and it kind of brought up all this. I mean, in the UK, the great thing is university education certainly then was free, but you still had to pay to be there. And so it created probably the first conundrum. The first time I had to be a little bit more um, you know, entrepreneurial because I had to figure out how to pay for it. My mom and dad were kind of like, if you can figure out paying for it, you can go. But otherwise you know, Edinburgh or like Belfast is going to be fantastic. And so that was the first time where I felt like I had to problem solve a bigger thing. So do you want to know what I did? Yeah, how'd you do it? (laughs) So I found this crazy, sat in my career room and I found this crazy advert from an accounting firm, Arthur Anderson. I'd never heard of them. They were an American firm. Um, And they were offering a one-year scholarship where you took time out, you took a gap year, you worked for them. Um... And then they gave you a five-month travel stipend, or they gave you a stipend, which you could then take and travel for about five months before you went to university. That was actually the hook for me. Yes, there was the paying for university stuff, but the idea that I would be free to go travel was just so exciting. And I realized, like, in some ways, so naive, because, you know, the stuff that... So I did that. I worked for them. and, And in May, I packed a backpack, and I went off to Southeast Asia. Like, I flew to Thailand during the rioting in Thailand, like in the 90s, like the bot crisis, like the currency had devalued, um, and then went from Thailand to Malaysia to Hong Kong, Singapore, and then Australia. And I was like 18, <laughs> 18, 19. I was like, what were my parents thinking? Um, but, you know, it's, again, like you you learn how to be incredibly entrepreneurial because you're constantly problem solving when you're a young woman like with, with just your backpack and you got to figure out how to make your budget last and all the things you want to do and um, and even your own safety. But like you also realize there's so much good in the world. I think we're all brought up to like, particularly now, like the world is safer. Like all the stats show the world is safer. And yet we all feel because we can see the stories that it's a, an incredibly unsafe world. Um, and yet, you know, I backpacked around Southeast Asia and Australia at 18, survived and 
don't have any particular horror stories either. People were genuinely really kind all over that part of the world. And then, so you go from from that you they helped pay for your entrance. Yeah, then they paid. Yeah, that's they paid for four years. Four years of a stipend. It was awesome. They were good peeps. Thank you, Arthur Anderson. That is amazing. Yeah, and they also like look. By the way, they taught me about business because I knew nothing about business. I mean, I grew up in this like farming community. I knew nothing about like a P&L statement or a balance sheet or any of these things. And suddenly here I was, this little mini accountant, learning about debits and credits and walking into people's businesses. And you had to kind of understand what the business did to even do your job. And so it was such an eye-opener. It was so good for me. And I think it was such a good combination of, like, I was doing this engineering degree, but every, um, like, you had to, the deal was you went back every summer and worked for them. So, but it was great, guaranteed summer job. Um, So I was always learning about business alongside my degree, which turned out to be a fantastic combination. So... You were also a rower, right? <laughs> I was, yeah. And did you row in in school? So I, I took up rowing at Oxford when I got there. Um, clearly, I mean, in the U.S., it's such a different level of, you know, university-level sports, right? You, you've been doing them for 40 years before you right. even get into school. Yes. And in the U.K., you can show up at university and say, hey, I'd like to row, and you can make it onto the varsity team. I mean, that would be kind of unheard of. But, yeah, I took up rowing. Um, now, it was a little quintessential Oxford, right, if you're going to do a sport. <laughs> but it also, I mean, it just played to my, like, who I am as a person. Because, like, anyone who's ever rowed or knows rowers, right, they're all kind of psychotic, right? Who else, as a student, agrees to get up at 5 a.m., cycle to the river in, like, freezing cold temperatures, get in a boat, like, do ridiculous amounts of exercise, get back on a bike, go to labs, in my case, because I was an engineer, and then hit a gym, like all afternoon, because uh, you're incredibly fit when you row. So it teaches you a lot about like what, how much you can physically and mentally push yourself in that boat. And it was, um, I mean, those are some of my best memories of, of life, actually. When you think about your decisions of what you studied in college and then after university, mm-hmm. like the steps that you made to get your career moving, mm-hmm. How deliberate were you then? Like, I, I can hear the, the goal, mm-hmm. you know, that you're like, I see a goal, I'm going to go for it. Did you know what your goal was? How did you decide that when you were really, when you're early in your career getting started? So I don't know how much I knew it then. And I think we all run the, you know, hindsight is becomes a little bit more 2020, where we kind of write the story of the facts and it you know, pull it together into a story. I think the things I've learned and whether I was doing them implicit, probably more implicitly rather than explicitly were to, you know, make sure that you today, actually, I really buy into this framework of Ikigai. So like, what's the thing you're really good at? So figuring out the things you're good at, but more than that, what are you also really passionate about? Um, where can you get paid <laughs> to do those? And then is it good for the world? The fourth one took a lot, much longer time in my life to come to. But the first three, implicitly, I think I was getting there. And, you know, the interesting thing, my, my actual first job out of college, so I, I, I went off as a, in my third year and did an internship with Ashanti Goldfields, which was a mining company in Ghana. So in this gold mine outside of Accra in a place called Abwasi. Um, because I really was passionate about it. I was going to be this engineer. And part of it was a little bit like, 
sometimes if people tell me I can't do something, that is the ultimate, like you should not throw that down. Um, and so there was this whole thing about like how it wasn't a place for a young woman to be like in engineering, but then in particular, like to take it to this extreme. Turns out there may have been some truth in that. It was not a very warm, welcoming place. And it kind of is fire in the belly for me today about particularly being more of a role model for younger women because I went to work on that mine and there was not a woman in sight and it was a very um, sexist, you know, male culture. And not, you know, I don't think people were deliberately trying to be evil, but it was just how it was, right? You know, I would be asked to make the tea all the time. I'm like, I, you have a degree. I'm working the same as you. <laughs> totally. We're both doing the same job. <laughs> Why am I making the tea? Um and a lot of protecting, like, oh, you shouldn't go down the mine. I'd be like, well, <laughs> how would I do the job that you want me to do if we're working on a gold mine? <laughs> like, by default, you have to go down there. So um, I came back from that and pivoted away, actually kind of said, okay, I don't want to do this engineering thing. And I worked for McKinsey, so took a, you know, a right turn. But I think part of the taking the job at McKinsey was going back to what I loved. Like I, I'm super analytical. So McKinsey's very analytical. I'm inquisitive and curious. McKinsey's a perfect kind of uh, Petri dish for that, right? Because every new study you do is something new and different. And they kind of hung out the 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 cheese of like you could travel a lot and actually I ended up working for McKinsey almost mostly in South Africa and so it was the perfect combination for me and I you know the again writing the book kind of backwards now and giving advice to younger people I think environments like that where you are not just you know joining one particular stream and you're going to become more and more of an expert like I fully buy into careers should be zigzaggy that you know don't think of it like if you end up after 10 years, you've done the num- the only thing and you're a complete expert. It's like you're standing on the top of a really thin pole versus if you've zagged a lot, you've kind of got almost like a, a matrix of experiences. And so one part of that might fall down, but you've still got a lot of things to fall back on. And I think that's the best thing you can do when you're young in your career is take a lot of risk, really lean into it, um, work hard. But look for range, like look for diversity of experiences. Have you read David Epstein's book, Range? It is my most favorite. I just read it. I haven't read it, but what you, I've, <laughs> it seems the themes are consistent. And definitely what I, be, I mean, it's almost like a liberal arts view yeah. to your career, it is. right? It is. Like you, you yeah. go wide and you, you pay attention to your strengths along the way and then you zoom in and so, that's where you take off. When I read that book, I was like, oh my God, this is like, he's written and said it so much better, but this is what I believe. Yeah. Um, and you're, the liberal arts, that's a good way to say it because remember in the UK, it's the antithesis of a liberal arts education, right? You know, I actually studied metallurgy, economics and management. And when you got into it, I, you know, went even deeper. I don't even know what that word means. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> But somehow as an 18-year-old, like, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. I mean, that's the kind of the stupidity of the amount of specialization that some education systems kind of bring to bear. You know, there's pluses and minuses. But I think you need to keep adding range elsewhere if you're being specialized in one particular thing that you're doing. Is there something you've seen either through yourself or people that you've mentored along the way of, um, I've found that understanding what your strengths are and being able to articulate it of what you're actually good at is so much harder than you would think. And for you or for, yeah, for people you've mentored, what are the ways to, to figure that out? Yeah. Yeah. So I call that going back to first principles because often people will say, 
you know, I'm really good at marketing. I'm like, no, you can, you're not well, good at marketing. <laughs> like, what is that? That's not a thing. Um, you could be really good at communicating. That to me is a thing. That's much more first principled. Or you're really good at like data analysis. Like that is a thing. Um, and so I think you're right. I think it, it actually takes work and it doesn't just, you don't just wake up and you're like, oh, I'm really good at these things. I think you have to, I mean, you have to do first of all, um, and be really self-aware and kind of honest of where you're breaking through on things. I would look for patterns. Like I worked on this project and I worked on this project and I was successful in these two and not on this one. Like what were the commonalities or the differences? I would definitely ask other people. And I, I always say like, when you ask people for feedback, if you ask the people you're immediately working with, I think they just have a bias. Part of it is just the bias of um, they have to show up and keep working with you. So if they're brutally honest, that is hard for a lot of people. Um, I find people that you used to work with, it's like they've taken truth serum and they tell you a whole bunch of things that you wish they had told you at the time. But because in some ways the stakes are not so high anymore, they tend to be a little bit more brutally honest. Um, I think this is a good place to look for feedback, both peer and upward and downward like it should be 360 because you know some people are really good at managing up so therefore senior people when they give them feedback are like oh you're really good at this thing and versus if you ask your peer or someone that works for you they'll they kind of know the dirty underbelly <laughs> and how much help you got to do that thing um and yeah you can get through a certain amount of life kind of blagging it <laughs> but at the end like it has to come back to the essence of what are you truly good at and like and and talk you know again breaking it down into things that are real, like communication skills, data analysis. Are you good interpersonally? Like, are you good with people? You know, are you kind of really good at precision? These are more the words I would use than marketing yeah. or finance or When you also sales. mentioned the word passion, because you have to mix what you're good at with yes. what you actually enjoy. Oh, and yes. if, you, if you say, I'm good at this, but it actually drains your energy, yes. maybe that's not the path. Oh, it's, um, I have a two by two on this, spoken like a good ex McKinsey consultant, even as a manager now. So I call it the, what am I great at something or bad at something? And am I passionate or not passionate? If you're passionate and great, awesome. Do that all day, every day. And in fact, don't let yourself hire other people to do take that away because that's actually the thing that you should be adding value in the organization. If you're passionate and not great, that's danger zone. You need to go hire people <laughs> immediately because you are going to destroy value in that quadrant. If you are great and not passionate, I think you can do those things for longer. Um, but you need to be careful that they're not completely energy sapping. Like often that's why you leave jobs because, you know, you were great at that thing, but you never told people that actually you hated it. And then if you're not passionate, not great don't worry, you'll go get other people to do it because like on no front are you going to be successful. <gasps> There's something about being able to pay attention to your strengths and then act on them. Re it requires a lot of self-belief mm -hmm. because so many parts of the country or world, like we live in a little bubble in Silicon mm -hmm. Valley where, um, you know, taking risk and failing is rewarded and seen as a great thing. And there's so many places where that's not true. What are your thoughts on, on kind of risk taking and following your intuition? Cause under like, you know, maybe you're this creative person and your parents are telling you that you need to follow this straight line, yeah. right? Which there's, but that creativity could lead you to becoming the best yeah. designer at the best firm. Yeah. And if you followed that path, like, how do you do that? Um, 
So there's a couple of things. Just before I answer that, the on the, the former point about the finding your strengths and leaning into them, that is the best career advice I ever got. Like I, it was another senior woman who actually said, how was your review? I'm like, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, oh, all you've told me about were the things that you're not good at and what you're going to go do, yeah. fix them. She's like, that's the worst thing ever. Like for those, you should go either once you're senior enough, hire other people to do that or just don't get yourself in a job where you have to do a lot of that stuff. Go, it's better to be A++ at like one or two things. Yes. Yep. So go lean on your strengths. And, and like for any women that are listening, I think women are notoriously bad at this because women have like a deep, like a often a pleasing streak that says, I'm really going to work on my weaknesses. Like anytime I do a review, I find women are like, oh yeah, that, that good stuff. That's great. T- tell me what I need to work on. And I find like men at the end of the review often I'll say, so what did you hear? You know, I won't say it quite that way, but that's what I'm hearing for. It. And they only heard the good stuff. Like it's, yeah. it's like they're deaf to the bad stuff. Um, so anyways, lean into the good stuff. And then working beside someone like Jack Dorsey at Square, I think Jack really taught me that just even more in sharp view of like really just the things he's great at. Like Jack is an amazing recruiter. He's got an amazing intuition for like where trends in the world will go to like Mark Benioff at Salesforce, another person like that. Um, and really good like design feel like he'll kind of look at something and just know if it's going to work or not. And then he doesn't spend any time on anything else. And I, almost can't help myself because I feel like I need to add some value or whatever and suddenly I'll be like a mile wide and so uh, you know just watching people like that in actions how they're successful on the risk-taking thing you know it's a tough one because I do think that wherever you know if you're at that stage in your career early on like I worked for big institutions right I worked for McKinsey and then I went to business school and I worked for Goldman and when I went to Goldman, right, my the, the kind of my key mentor at business school was like so perplexed, so offended. Why are you doing this? And I was like, look, you know, I need a visa. And I need like I need money. I'm like broke. I need to pay off my debt. Um, and so it was like a very rational decision, but a very kind of safety decision. But I think once you've made that sometimes you make them for very good rational reasons. It doesn't mean that you then can take risks within the institution and go like, you know, don't be comfortable. Like, you know, spend a year doing something and then go ask for the next big thing. And like, you might not get it immediately, but I do think putting your hand up and pushing yourself for the things that scare you, right? Like I firmly believe if you don't get like a little rush of adrenaline every day, you're not living, like go do something else. Now, when you can take bigger risks, like for me, when I kind of said, okay, I'm not doing this Wall Street thing anymore. I am literally retiring and I'm going to go find another job. It was really scary. I was like, oh my God, maybe I'm not qualified for anything. Maybe I'll never get another job. But I did it because I could, but I also knew if I didn't do it at that stage, I would just keep doing the thing I was doing because I was good at it, but but it didn't, I was in the quadrant of like, I was good, but low passion. Yeah. Um, so like, and, and you know those moments, I think you know them in your soul, like those moments where you're like, I have, like when Nextdoor came calling and I was like, oh my God, I'm going to leave Square. I feel sick. Like, oh my God. But like, I just knew I had to take the leap because you only live it once, right? You don't want to look back and regret that you didn't take the risk. And, you know, in the end, like if you fail, you fail. It's all learning, right? Hmm. Um, it's interesting on even, you know, we have a lot of athletes on ProKit and and listening who are also, I think, you know, entrepreneurs on the side. And um, even in the athletic sphere, like a lot of things have changed in 
each sport. Like if you look at running or cycling and there's the, the playing to your strengths part that you were talking about, I think applies in so many more things than even your career and business because it's understanding if in cycling, are you a good climber? Like what's your role and what are you good at and what, what makes you passionate? Um, so I, yeah, it's not even a, it's more of an observation. No, on it's, like the, it's, it's very true. Like if I go back to rowing, right, the closest I got to kind of, you know, doing something from an athletic standpoint at a really high standard. So I rode for Oxford, like I rode for the university. And it was like a lot of learning for me that I was a good seven seat or bow, like we had a frig rig boat so I could row either. Because A, I was not that big, like I think of myself as a fairly tall big woman, but I was like tiny compared to most rowers. So I had to agree that I wasn't going to be the engine of the boat. And I rode stroke a couple of times. And I really didn't enjoy it because I realized like my strength was actually in some ways, I hate to put yourself in the number two seat because like now I don't want that to be my epitaph. (laughs) But at that moment in time, it was, I was really good at bringing along other people. And I think the seventh seat in the boat is that classic seat where like you got the person in front that's setting the rhythm and they're often a little like my stroke for the longest time, this woman, Emma, who went on to join the British Army, which will just tell you something about her psyche. And like, she'd be like, we're taking it up. And I'd be like, we're all dying back here. And like, I could feel almost the fear rippled on the boat. And then I had to like, without verbalizing it, almost like just, you know, mentally will people into like, don't worry, I'm going to take her batshit crazy and I'm going to turn it into a rhythm and we're going to hit it and it's not going to kill us. And like, I think about that a lot in life right now as a leader, like that's my role. Like it used to be like when I worked for other people, like I had someone else who was the batshit crazy and I had to just give everyone else the confidence that we were about to do something that felt like subhuman or other way around, like beyond human. Um, uh, and but but it would work. And now it's not a person, but it's all the environment that you live in, right? It's the competitors are going to do something or the market is going to do something or whatever it is, is coming at you. And I have to kind of mind meld my team that it's going to be okay, but that we do need to rise a beat to meet it. <laughs> and it's, it's such an, you know, to all the people who are in sports listening, you have just this amazing ability to kind of when it really feels like you can't pull another ounce of yourself out to do it. Because that's to me what great sports people do. Um, somehow deep down, they find that grit that lifts them above everyone else. And I, I think that's, that's the sort of thing everyone in a business world is looking for. Well said. <laughs> well said. Um, finding and transitioning to becoming a CEO what was the learning curve for you? Where were the parts where you got uncomfortable, where you go from, I mean, very important role at Square to, um, you know, to Nextdoor where where everyone's looking to you <laughs> for the whole picture. So what, what was that transition like? Um, so, I mean, I think first and foremost, I, I actually don't overthink the transition. Like people ask me all the time, what's it like yeah. to be a CEO? And I'm like, I don't know. There's just work. I'm just work. working. <laughs> there's just work. It I needs to get done. I came in and done. just work. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just going to make sure it gets done. Um, 
And it's a lot of the same things, right? I think, you know, as a leader, the the phrase I use all the time is people first, right? Get your people right. Everything else just works. So regardless of your role, like, or regardless of my role, that's always been like the mantra. I think at each step up, it's been more because, you know, when I was a more junior manager, I had a small team I had to recruit for. Then I became a CFO and I had a broader team. Um, and now as a CEO, it's the whole company that I'm thinking about from a recruitment and like getting the people right. It's not just recruiting them. It's making sure they're successful when they join. So a lot of that. I think the other thing is um, uh, like people talk a lot about the loneliness of the CEO role, which I kind of actually don't buy into at all, because I think that the loneliness is there if your ego's in front of you. But if you don't, if you can subsume the ego and be okay asking, reaching out to people, and it doesn't always have to be the same people, but just in those moments where you're kind of not sure about a decision, um, you know, just feels like there's a lot on top of you, remembering that there are a lot of people out there who are on side, who really want you to be successful. I think it ultimately does come back, though, at some point, you have to get really comfortable that you're going to make the decision. Um, and those moments for me are actually, you know, as we stare at this mountain sitting here doing this podcast, like of getting out, like that's to me where nature and hiking and exercise are just so mind clearing. Like that's where I get my focus. Like those are the moments when I have a really tough decision. I'll literally leave the house and, you know, my husband will say, when are you coming back? I'm like, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> and it could be like two, three hours, four hours, like I'll just keep walking and kind of, and I'm not just only thinking of that thing. Like sometimes I might listen to music for a while or I might like listen to a podcast, but I'll keep coming back to the problem. And I usually feel like by the time I get home, I'm like, okay, I've tried on this answer multiple times and this is what we're going with. And maybe, and there's rare, you know, the whole Bezos door one, door two, there's not that many decisions you make in life that are unrecoverable from. Um, as long as you're willing to also admit that you've made a mistake, which again, a whole other kind of side of someone's psyche. Um, when I left Square, I asked Jack's advice. It's kind of funny. Like you ask people's advice. Jack kind of said, you need to be careful of, you know, being too in the details of everything. Right. <laughs> totally good point, <laughs> knowing me. And then I asked someone else that same question. I said, you know, I worked with Jack and he's really good at focusing on these couple of things and he doesn't get all bugged down in the weeds. Now I'm becoming a CEO. Like, is that the, you know, is that what I should be thinking about? And like this person who's a former CEO of a massive, like if I said the name of the company, a massive American culture company, he was like, well, what do you think made you successful, Sarah? And I was like, my attention to detail. He's like, right. So what do you think? And I'm like, okay, good point. So going back to knowing yourself and not trying to be other people. Like, I think a lot of people love the, you know, they read the Steve Jobs biography and suddenly they're I'm like be acting Steve like Steve yeah. Jobs. I'm like, you know, it's the be yourself everyone else has taken. Yeah. Totally buy that. That's great. You know, you you talked about like the nature and exercise, like the your routines or habits that you kind of go to every day or every week. Talk about like you wake up in the morning. Do you have a routine? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not, you're not, yeah. not shocked having <laughs> not listened to me for a little while. And actually, I feel like finally I'm on a podcast where when I tell my routine, people are going to be like, is that it? As opposed to usually I'm like worried that I sound like crazy person. So I typically get up about five, um, natural early morning person. And that first hour of the day, like the first thing I do is exercise. So um, like elliptical, uh, the uh, erg, which still gives me slight 
breaks out in hives of anxiety, but I'll still get on the erg. Or if, depending if it's the weekend and I don't feel like I need to be around the house, like when my kids are sleeping, I feel like I need to be here. But the weekends, I will hit the mountain as well because I love, I love the dawn. I love being out in nature when dawn is coming because it's actually a little frightening ahead of the dawn a little dark and you never know what might be hanging out there We've on the mountain a lot of coyotes <laughs> right here <laughs> a few mountain lions um but i i kind of love that feeling of it's almost exhilarating you know so walk or run at that time of the morning so that first hour and then i'll sit down and actually try to crunch out usually about a half hour 45 minutes of work before i go to start get ready and it used to be i'd get ready and then i'd hit a car and you know head to work now it's a little different because i walk three minutes to my office over the garage, my little cave. I'm pretty regimented. And then actually now through the crisis that we're living through, I find I've now injected another kind of 45 minutes, maybe even an hour of actual just going out for a walk or a hike at the end of the day. I'm a big fan of meditation. So I usually try to do, if I don't walk those evenings, like two or three times a week, I will meditate. And that's definitely something I've stolen from Jack and was a little skeptical of, but really buy into now um, that there's something too about calming your mind um, that gives you, I think, incredible focus and kind of refresh. Do you use an app or any, like how do you, when you meditate, is there something uh, that you? Yeah, I, I mean, I have a, like a terrible, it's not even a good app. Like I've, I've used Calm, I've used like all the Headspace, but there's like this one podcast called Meditation Oasis. The woman has kind of a crazy meditative voice and I just find it really hypnotic. It, for you. it yeah. totally is hypnotic. But but I don't really I also like if if I don't have my phone with me or whatever, I'd be happy to sit like and just really clear your mind. Like I've read like there's a lot of great books I think even on areas like transcendental meditation if you buy into that. Um I haven't gone the whole way to like getting my whatever ohm thing. I've thought about it. Again, it's one of those things like if I had more time in life. Yeah. Um, but I think that's a gift. And then, you know, when I'm tra- when I traveled, I used to do a lot of like just even in my hotel room, you know, the seven minute workout times it's three. It's wonderful. It's a great Bite workout. Bite-sized workouts. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of people I've had on, that's their, that's their go-to. Yeah. That's the trick is the bite-sized workout. Yeah. But the key is like every morning. So regardless of where I am in the world, and even when sometimes, like if I go back east and you're like, oh my God, I'm going to get up at five, but that's actually like getting up at two in the morning. I just think it's the best way to hit anyway. a time yep. zone is you just force yourself to get up and do it by rote. So you've talked about being regimented and goal oriented. So what happens when everything falls apart? When the uh, shit hits what the happens fan. when the shit hits the fan and we just had the whole world just changed around us in a eighty day period. I um, just explode. Um, or like before an earnings call with Square and so maybe everything was so you had everything no. so dialed that it didn't break. But what happens when it breaks? Yeah, actually those are the moments I, you would you would expect that for someone that's just sounded relatively like, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for that, you know, is intensely like a control freak. That's the phrase I'm looking for. I'm actually good in crisis. Like I would actually say that's one of the things I'm very good at because I it's almost like a calmness comes over me. I don't 
ever really lose my temper. Like, in fact, the minute something really bad has happened, that's actually the worst time to kind of have anger or frustration show because usually that's the time with a team that they're really on the edge and redlining and like shouting at them. you tip them over, that's not good. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I will more get angry in the retro afterwards. Like, if just stupid shit happened, Um, I don't cope well when people don't treat other people well. That can be the thing that can tip me. But like, big panic moments or big changes that's i don't know why that just like very zen on that probably get like that that's my dad he's very and actually both my parents right they they lived in this strange world right where my mom would have someone our doorbell would ring at like you know whatever time at night and someone would be at the door with like you know, I don't know, their arm hanging off or their mom had just had a heart attack or babies had decided to come early. And my mom, like for someone who's actually relatively high strung, it was almost like those were her major moments where just everything kind of worked. Um, my brother is like a consultant in a, in a high dependency unit. So literally that's like after you've gone through ICU and you are going to bite it, you show up to my brother. So there's definitely something like it's not quite Lance Armstrong's heart or whatever, uh-huh. or Michael Phelps's size yeah. of hands, <laughs> but there's something genetic about our ability to live with like severe kind of crisis and be okay. Okay. So we talked about your morning routine, meditation, you come home from work. Yeah. What do you do? Yeah. So now in crisis mode, I come home from work, which is a three minute walk. And I put on my running shoes and I immediately go for a walk because I feel like I can't come off of the, I think I'm still spinning at work time. And it's actually a very bad time to engage with my family because I'm still super distracted. So if I'm for my kids, I'm not a very good mom in that moment. And for my husband, that is the moment where like, if he starts to ask me to do things or uh, like that is not good for our marriage. (laughs) So I almost have to come down off of the speed that I'm whirling at. Um, So I just hit the hit a trail just by myself. I actually listen to a lot of um, I'm a big reader to begin with, but like I actually listen to a lot of books on Audible. Um, And usually the I have like a theory on reading. I call it like there's the eat your greens, like the broccoli books that, you know, you really should read. Like I'm still making my way through like on China, um, which is like a mega book. Like I I wouldn't wish it on anyone, but I thought it was important to read given the Chinese American situation right now. So the eat your greens books. And then, you know, then I get to my like candy books that I can read right before I go to sleep. Um, But that's hit the trail and then come back in and then I can be like a good wife, good parent, good daughter, (laughs) like all of those things can kick into gear because I'm I'm sure I mean, it's you're releasing into your body, right? As you exercise all those endorphins that are counteracting, I think, all the the stress that you've built up all day. So you've got, I mean, between the boards and your CEO role and ladies who launch, Mm -hmm. being a parent. How do you <laughs> how do you do it? Um, how do you do it? Most people can barely like get out <laughs> for their daily exercise. <laughs> so part of it is definitely so first of all you can tell I have like a little FOMO in life, so I do find it hard to say no. So I probably do try to do too much. I think where I've gotten to that I really like at the moment is a lot of the things I do have a lot of commonality. So it's not really one plus t- one plus one getting to three. I feel more like I'm at like one, but I get to one and a half. So if you think about next door is all about community. 
Ladies Who Launch was launched on this premise of community. How do you create community for female entrepreneurs on Main Street? Um, Walmart, you know, interestingly, the reason I joined the board is actually because a lot of the community-ness of Walmart. And in this crisis, we've really seen how a brand like Walmart really is there for people in a time of crisis. Californians have a very different view of Walmart from most of the rest of the country. And when I went and met with the team in Arkansas and read Sam's book, actually, which is a great book to read if you're an entrepreneur, um, Made in America, because, you know, it's just like a man who shows up and creates a supermarket in his local town and 50 years later is the Fortune One. I mean, it's a wild story. They have a lot of commonality. Slack is probably, Slack and Nextdoor actually have a lot of similarities about how we think about building the flywheel of communities coming together in groups. Um, So Stuart and I have a lot in common when we talk about our businesses. But I think those, like there's more commonality than differences now. And I found like in prior parts of my career, I'd get this dissonance where like even when I was at Square, I felt like I had to kind of somewhat hide ladies who launch a little bit. Like Jack sometimes be like, why, why are you going off to like, you know, what are you doing in St. Louis? You know, I'd be like, oh, I'm going to go see the team. But the reality would be I'd be running a ladies who launch event and I'd feel like I had to hide it, which is ridiculous because I know if I told Jack this story right now, he'd be looking at me like, what is wrong with you? It's a great thing. I'm so glad you're doing it. But I felt like I had to be more like, you know, apologetic for using that time. Versus what I find with the commonalities is it's good going back to range. I think it's good for the brain because you see these patterns emerge in one place. You copy them over here. You know, it's just really good learning across all of them. Um, And so I feel in a much more Zen place. That said, look, I am not like some superwoman. I have an amazing partner and my husband. So I picked well. He always says he read the S1. He's an investor, so he jokes about reading the S1 on me and understanding (laughs) what he was buying. And I'm like, no, no, no. The secret is I actually picked better because he's an amazingly supportive husband. You know, and I have a really good support system around me. Um, And I think that's also key to remember that you're not doing it yourself. Like you have a lot. Like even in Ladies Who Launch, we finally hired a CEO this year or an executive director and it is night and day suddenly having someone to focus on that business because it's now becoming like a real business um ladies who launch like what are, have there been surprises or things where you've kind of confirmed a viewpoint or you know where do you see the biggest potential or shifts happening or roadblocks yeah. that are blocking I mean, it's it's kind of, I mean, it's both incredibly uplifting and super frustrating as an organization. What I mean by that is, you know, it's uplifting. So Ladies Who Launch is, is uh, we originally started as an in-person event series, which is ironic in the middle of COVID-19. Um, and we've done events all over the world. So we'll go to Sydney, we'll go to London, we'll go to Belfast where I grew up, we'll go to St. Louis, Denver, and we bring together um, a group of women, usually 200 to 300 women who are all starting or running their own businesses, not tech, so very much like more Main Street. And we try to bring them community because we'll often go and find they don't even know each other. They're like, oh my goodness, I didn't know there were so many people in Denver who were starting a business. Um, We bring them education. So I find for a lot of women, they know they want to start this business, right? They just have that like intuition that this is a thing or they're passionate about it, but they have no idea how to even get going. And I think the start moment is one of the hardest things, as you know, as an entrepreneur, like it's starting your business or starting the new feature or whatever, just like getting going. 
And then the third thing we try to bring them is inspiration. So we'll try to find the women in their area that have actually been wildly successful as kind of a role model. Um, And so that's the uplifting because you just see these women blossom almost through the event and afterwards the energy and the vibe and the way they want to continue this community is so uplifting the frustrating thing is like it's just the same problems everywhere you go in the world like women don't get financed right right now there's a report just came out in the uk that women get one percent of all vc funding one percent like literally one dollar out of every hundred goes to women it's ridiculous so funding is super frustrating i think because i was talking to a female founder this week about this i find that um i think men get uncomfortable giving women really direct brutal feedback and that includes when they're fundraising so sometimes someone will call me and be like hey i think i had a good meeting and i'll I'll say okay tell me a little bit about the meeting and like five minutes in, I'll be like, they're never going to fund you. They're like, no, they said that if I did this and did that and brought this back. And I'm like, no, no, no. They just didn't want to tell you no. So they decided to ask you for some more information, which their hope is that you like don't have time. So you'll never do it. But the reality is they don't know that you're not about to go off and waste your precious entrepreneurial time doing all this work. And then you're going to bring it back. And then they're going to say no. So awful outcomes. I see that happen a lot. And then I think the third thing for women is um, just so much like of that pent up like imposter syndrome like or fear of failure that I I don't think it's men don't feel it. I think they absolutely do. But there's just more of um, like they're more able able to subsume that fear and just go for it. And like, you know, Silicon Valley is full of men who have failed and it's celebrated. And I think women are much harder on themselves. So that's the frustrating thing is like I feel like if I were – 50 years younger, 50 years older, I'd still just be having the same conversations. And I'm like, what is it that actually causes change? And I'm impatient for the change to happen faster. The same thing, in the, even in the, you know, the sports, the people who are on ProKit, you know, you look at, one of the things that's talked about is what, most of the coaches are men. Mm-hmm. You look in cycling, most of the people writing about the sport are men the event organizers. So there's a lot of things where in the infrastructure of how the system totally. works, yeah. it is just inherently biased and pushed in one direction. Mm-hmm. And we talk a lot about just like you need to see something to believe it. Yeah, and see it to believe it or you can't be what you can't see. I mean, that's what's been so cool. Like look at women's soccer and how right, crazy. Completely yeah, how crazy though that even in women's soccer, that they had to like go full on to get paid, like despite their raging success. But at least it begets success because you know it gets invested in younger women coming up, believe that they really can be the world champions. They can be the you know they can win the like all of the things are available to them. Actually, much more so than men's soccer. But even there, look at the biases that still occur. So you're a woman on Main Street. You have a great idea. And you need to get funding right now. Mm-hmm. What do you do? What so, are the, what yeah. Are, yeah, the avenues. I mean, it's tough. Like, I actually feel like your first port of call is friends and family. And you need to be okay asking. Um, uh, you know, in the end, they're there to support you. I think that's always your starting point. Um, then I would look, I'm actually trying to create a list right now of, of funds. But often they're led by women who want to invest in women. Because... 
it's not funding's actually not about money. Funding's about advice and mentorship and coaching and opening doors for you. And I think sometimes people don't realize that the first couple of times they take funding, they're all about like X is going to give me this and Y is going to give me that, so I should take X because it's more. And I always ask like, well, exp- who are these people? And what are they going to do for you? And have they walked in your shoes? Like, are they going to give you good advice? So finding kind of a, you know, I'm trying to create that library to go to because a lot of women are like, I don't even know who to call. The worst, I think the thing that is still not open is things like bank funding. Like banks always show up and say they're there to fund, you know, the the small women entrepreneur. As long as you have $100,000 of revenue, you know, and whatever. And I'm like, okay, so basically no one is getting any funding from you because the whole point is like they don't have any revenue yet. So I get a little frustrated with that. There are also like some great grants. Like we just literally this morning in our good news of the day, more, more good news, Kettle One, it's kind of an interesting brand. I wouldn't have expected. Just gave ladies who launched fifty thousand dollars to do grants out to women entrepreneurs, like five thousand dollar grants. So we're gonna have ten, and we'll do the you know we'll we'll put the word out. We'll do the vetting. We'll do the picking. But I think there is money that wants to go to work. And this is the other thing that I'm excited about Ladies Who Launch right now is can we be a conduit for that? Because we've started to create a brand that people begin to recognize and trust. There's a lot of brands that want to support small businesses in particular at the moment, given what's going on. And can we just funnel that appropriately? Um, I don't want to close without getting to Nextdoor. So (laughs) so Nextdoor, um, we're in the middle of, a pandemic like we haven't seen in at least a hundred years. And now there's an app that helps bring the community together. So, um, (laughs) yeah, what have been the, you know, we talked about community and that kind of is a through line through some of the things you've done. So what have you, what have been, you know, we're into this now. What the highlights or whatever. It, yeah, yeah. How's it working? It's been amazing. I mean, if there were ever a time when people realized the power of proximity, like why your neighbors matter, like I feel like my first year or so was a lot of having to evangelize that in some ways. And so the good news is I don't feel like I need to tell anyone that anymore. People understand why your neighbors matter. I think the second thing is people are under, beginning to understand. I mean, we're kind of there's a like an insidious crisis going on in our world that we don't spend a lot of time looking at. And it's the crisis of loneliness. And I don't want to get all like deep on you. But as I have gone about the world, like one of the things I did my first year at, school, at Nextdoor um, is that I literally went to every country that we're in. We're in 11 countries. And I would just meet with like round tables of neighbors. And it was so interesting, you know, and I was kind of trying to pick up on themes, right? It's classic product development 101, right? Just go listen and then look for like the themes. And the theme that kept coming up, it was kind of heartbreaking, was this theme of loneliness. But it would usually, the story would go along the lines of, right, there's this amazing woman in Paris called Regina, and she's in her 80s. And she said, next door saved my life. And I was like, that sounds a little extreme, but tell me your story. And it was, you know, it could have been one of many stories that I heard along the way, right? I was here living in this place. I, my friends, family, for whatever reason, I became very isolated. I was feeling more and more alone to the point of like not really wanting life to go on. And suddenly through your app, I happened into something that the community was doing, right? And that's where we want the app to play is how do we create connections that can take people from kind of a virtual connection to an in real life connection. And in her case, it was a neighbor who'd created a Saturday morning he, it's the three C's in French, Café, Chocolat et Conversation, my great GCSE <laughs> French coming through. Um, 
And Regina shows up every Saturday and she suddenly has found like a group of people that care about her as an individual. And so I think that whole like holistic health, right? We, you're talking to sports people, right? Who really understand physical health. I actually think sports people really understand mental health better than anyone because they know that a sport at an extreme is more mental than physical in the end. But there's a lot of mental health that I think we as a society have kind of left behind. And as we lose our communities and lose that neighborhood to rely on, we don't realize how lonely we've all become. And that loneliness actually has a lot of then actual physical symptoms, um, like the reason people become obese and, and smoke and like the things they do to kind of fill the gap. And so at its soul, next door is about how do we ultimately cultivate kindness in the world and give people that neighborhood to rely on. Now, how we do that can range from the very mundane, like help me find a plumber, um, help me find a, the best neighborhood restaurant to go to, help me find a babysitter, I lost my pet, like a discussion about, um, you know, zoning, right, that can get very heated, right, it takes the whole gamut. But it does start to help people understand, like, I have agency here. I can actually do small acts of kindness around my community and with that build kindness in the community and with that build these strong weak ties. And with those strong weak ties, people actually become healthier. They typically become wealthier because usually the the community, the the equity in your home goes up. Um, And they definitely become much more resilient in times of crisis. Hmm. On kindness with the pandemic like for me one of the observations has been it's almost political like Mm -hmm. what's going on right now there's like people on every side and it feels like even within your friend group and your family and then Mm -hmm. when you multiply that out to your neighbors and your community like even just on the trails here there's people who wear their mask and there's people who don't (laughs) right like but that creates this this energy that can be very negative or it can be kind where you smile at someone and you recognize that they have a different viewpoint than you yeah i yeah i mean how do you as a platform how do you facilitate Mm -hmm. that but can you steer it towards kindness we can definitely norm things better so next door remember at on the entry, right, you come to our platform and you sign up to community guidelines, right? So we, we kind of from the get-go say, if you're going to show up here, there's some expectation of behavior. And then we do use a lot of design in the app itself to kind of cultivate kindness. And we've worked with a bunch of academics. Like one of the features I'm really proud of is something called Kindness Reminder that we launched last year. And Kindness Reminder came about from a conversation with um, Professor Jennifer Eberhardt, who is at Stanford. And she wrote a book called Biased. And it's all about um, slowing people down. And if you think about most platforms, and you know this well, right, it's usually a need for speed, like a reaction, a like, um, that's engagement, right? And the more you kind of rile people up, actually, the faster and better that engagement becomes. And so we actually have taken a tack to slow you down. So if you're posting something that our algorithm, like ML says, hey, this is probably a piece of content that will get reported, which we can do. And it's very local, which is the great thing about ML, because, you know, sarcasm goes down well in the UK, doesn't go down quite so well here in California. Um, Very local, but it pops up an interstitial that actually says, hey, remember, great neighborhoods are created in kindness, with kindness. It looks like what you're about to report 
is likely to be moderated, to be reviewed. And it's doing two things. It's slowing you down because, first of all, you have to stop to read. And the minute you read, you're back in your cognitive part of your brain, which is the part of your brain that actually knows you have a bias and then is capable of getting you past the bias. And then the second thing from the academics we've worked with is when humans believe they'll be reviewed or their actions will be looked at at some later point in time, they act better. And so it's a great example of taking design and technology but norming it into a behavior that you want to see. The, some of the things I'm looking, we're kind of pushing on is perspectives, which actually is where you're going with the mask front, which is in reality, most of us are not really ready to change our minds about things. In fact, there's a lot of research that shows that, you know, if, particularly when you look at something like po- politics, the people on one side, like 20% on one side and 20% on the other side are just not in the business of any form of like being their mind being changed. They're just in the business of conversion. They want you to move to their side. So you've got 60% in the middle where you can maybe move them. But I think a lot of it just comes from perspective of like understanding and having empathy for who you are as a person. Like this whole conversation, right? We know each other very differently than we did walking into it because you know a lot about how I grew up. And so suddenly if I do something that surprises you or you disagree with, you're actually more inclined to like not to understand again not necessarily change your mind but the idea that we would get heated with each other is probably much lower now because you're like well you know she grew up in a different country so probably has a different point of view and so we're trying to think about ways to bring perspectives into the platform as well so again not about trying to change people's mind but how do you get people to know each other and have some empathy like the whole walk a mile in someone's shoes like you feel very differently at the end that's great that's good you're, hard to you're do thinking deeply on it that is the that is a at least a good first step it's the beginning yes um so i won't take up your whole evening here um but we'll close it out with what are you reading watching and listening to right now oh my god okay so on the reading front um i have I'm at the tail end of American Dirt, which I really have enjoyed. That's my candy reading. It's excellent. Um, and then I just, on my more kind of eat your greens moment, aside from On China, which is going on forever, I'm reading Together by Vivek Murthy, who really is in this zone that I just talked about. He's the former Surgeon General under Obama, and he actually came up with the best soundbite about loneliness. So being lonely is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes per day. So highly recommend. Um, on the listening front, um, you know, I'm not like, uh, so I do listen on Audible, but I've been listening to together. So I, does that fit with yeah, my listening? Totally. Podca- um, the, the one other thing I've been listening to, which is super fun, is my country manager in France did this whole playbook for, you know, the pandemic. And he got all French neighbors to kind of send in example songs or songs for Zen and songs for motivation. And so I have this Spotify list of French neighbors, <laughs> which I really love. <laughs> and now it's unlocking this whole idea of like, could we have neighborhood playlists? Because yeah. it would celebrate the diversity of neighbors, but also the commonality. So I'm listening a little to that. And then on watching, like the whole country, I'm watching The Last Dance because, of course, my whole household is missing sports incredibly. <laughs> and so this is the closest that we're they're on, getting yeah, to sports. Yeah, we're on episode four of that. <laughs> okay, but, we're on yeah. episode seven. We're a little ahead of you. 
Um, I'm watching that. And then, I mean, honestly, I, I don't watch a lot of TV. I don't have a ton of time for it. But when I do, I'm like the queen of cooking shows, which is funny because yeah. I never have any time to cook, yeah. but I love cooking shows. All right. And and where can people find you on the lovely oh, internet? Yes. Um, you can find me in all sorts of places. Okay. You can definitely find me <laughs> on Nextdoor. Um, please do that first if you are my neighbor. You can find me on Twitter at, at the Friley. Long story, but the Friley, F R I L E Y. Um, on Instagram, I'm just Sarah.Fryer. And on what have I left out? LinkedIn, you'll find me as Chief Neighbor. All right. Very good. Thank you very much for joining. Thank you. Super fun. Talk to you soon. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Common Threads. If you liked the show, please tell your friends and followers on social media and encourage them to tune in. You can also leave a rating or review to help new listeners discover the show on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you're listening on. Or send me feedback directly on Twitter at David underscore Swain. And then head over to join our new platform for athletes at theprokit.com.